1: Hey, look, Joey's messing up again. What's new? It's okay. Dan is the only one that hasn't just fumbled this podcast away so
0: far. It's because he's a professional and knows how to That's actually true. be a human. Well,
1: like, once his kid wakes up or something, <laughs> then we'll, like, ha-ha,
2: we suck so bad, right. blah, blah blah I'm actually sneaking bites of popcorn when I'm not, uh, <laughs> and, and trying not to chew into the mic and being very quiet.
0: Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the Commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Ready to battle it out. Let's do this. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Challenge accepted. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHrec is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on EDHREC Cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Battle, Battle Bond! bond. <laughs> well, you said that in, in a pair. That's a... That's very fitting, actually.
1: We're tuned in. We're ready to go.
0: Before we get started with the review, though, let's take a look back at the bet that we made back in our Dominaria set review. As you guys may recall, we had Matt on Team Moldrotha, Dana on Team Joira, and me on Team Slimefoot. We each made a bet about which of those commanders from the Dominaria set would become the most popular. And we have the numbers in now, and I'm really depressed to report that I didn't win the bet.
1: The right person uh, one, though. Yeah, he's... The right person one. He's
0: been talking about it for the past couple casts now, and... Yeah, let's get to the numbers. So, in last place, there's me at Slimefoot the Stowaway with 132 total decks so far. Then we've got Joy of Weatherlight Captain Dana's pick at 139 decks. Above us is a commander that we both neglected to pick, and that's Joda Archmage Eternal at 259 decks. That's a commander that we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about, but he definitely proved us wrong. He's showing up to be really, really popular. But at number one from Dominaria, Moldrotha the Gravetide is at 354 decks. Congratulations, Matt, for winning the bet. I'm very sad.
1: Boom. Shot called. You're welcome. And like... I'll send you guys my address.
2: <laughs> yep. Are, are you going to build a, a Madrotha deck with your shiny foil Madrotha you send your way?
1: I, I already have the 99, like, sleeved and ready to go, actually. I played it a little bit last week with a buddy, just jamming it out, and it's
2: really good. Uh, salt in the wound. It'll be even better. It'll be even better with a foil commander.
1: It will be. It'll be so good. I found out that, uh, what is it, Final Parting, uh, the new tutor, put one in your graveyard, one in your mm-hmm. hand. Basically says, find any two-card combo for Muldrotha decks and win the next turn. So, it's great.
0: <laughs> You're a mean, mean man, Mr. Morgan.
1: Before we get onto the said I room, am. Oh, sorry. The, you know. Oh, I was going to say, I on. am. And the, the, the soup du jour last week was Intruder Alarm in Presence of Gond to uh, to put a couple games away. So
2: <laughs> oh, that's brutal.
1: It was great. I, I put out an Intruder Alarm from the Graveyard... Played a deathrite shaman and everybody's like okay whatever, and the next turn they found out what card I put into my hand, which was presence of Gond, and I won. So, so really quick
0: before we move on, what were your guys' impressions of Dominaria? Sort of a re-review, looking
2: back. Um, my impressions now are the same as they were, you know, when it was pre-released. I think it's fantastic. It's the fa- it's the it's my favorite set I've seen since uh, Return to Ravnica. That's a really bold statement. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, I I really like it. I've only gotten to play uh I would say 6 or 7 times with Dominaria cards, but they all seem to be really fun. Yeah, I I really enjoy this set. It's been it's been pretty good. It's better than I would say all of uh Kent block for sure. <laughs> wow. I know that you built that
0: Valduk deck that you were talking a lot about I did. Dana. Did you build any decks from Dominaria?
2: I didn't. I haven't built anything out of it yet. I've got a couple of things I'm kind of kicking around that I haven't committed to, but there's a, I, I put a ton of cards from it yeah. into existing decks, so it definitely provided plenty of fodder for decks I already had built. That was
0: exactly the same for me. There were a bunch of cards from Dominaria that I was like, oh, I want that for the 99. And I think that really speaks to the quality of a set. is isn't just the, the quality of the commanders that it makes, but also the quality of the non-commander cards that it makes. But... We're not here to talk about Dominaria, we're here to talk about Battle Bond. We've got a whole bunch of new stuff coming up in Battle Bond, so let's get right to it. Most importantly, we've got a new mechanic that affects the command zone. Dana, do you want to tell us about the new partner mechanic? Because we know how much you love partners.
2: Except for this is the partner mechanic on kind our of partner show that I said I wanted. That's true, actually. Part, it is. So I like I love this partner mechanic. Because you in this case, the partner mechanic we have is partner with so it basically says on the card, this commander may partner with in the command zone a specific other commander whose name is given. So in the case of pure imaginary imaginative rascal, it says he may partner. He partners with toothy imaginary friend. So if you want to have a partner in your command zone, it has to be those two cards. Right. And this
0: is kind of interesting. When you actually look at the reminder text for a card that has partners with... The reminder text actually applies more towards the the two-headed giant draft environment. The reminder text says, When this creature enters the battlefield, target player may put Toothy into their hand from their library, then shuffle. That's on pure imaginative rascal. He'll go fetch, either for you or for your two-headed giant partner, he'll get that Toothy into the hand. What it doesn't say there in the reminder text is that it actually can also be your partner in the command zone. I think it's a little weird that it's missing. But even so, we do have these two new commanders that can be used there. We've got a whole bunch of different pairs, and that's just a, a really
2: neat take. Dana, I'm, I'm glad to see that you got your wish. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that Wizards listens to me and specifically builds sets around things I suggest. <laughs> wow. I think that's if, if they keep doing that moving forward, we'll be in great shape.
0: All do you want to tell your us? Your voice will be heard. <laughs> right, exactly. All do you want to tell us about our first partner pair?
2: Well, since I mentioned their name initially, I might as well start with the pair, which is Peer, Imaginative Rascal, and Toothy, Imaginary Friend. Peer is in green. He's two and a green. And Toothy is in blue. He's three and a blue. So we have a Simic pair here. Peer lets you... Basically, he's a hardened scales on a stick. So if one or more counters will be put on a permanent your team controls, that many plus one of each of those counters are put on that permanent instead. And Toothy, Imaginary Friend says, whenever you draw a card, put a plus one counter on Toothy, and when Toothy leaves the battlefield, not dies, but leaves the battlefield, draw a card for each plus one counter on it. And they're both one
0: Right. There's a lot of information happening there. The basic gist of it is that Pure will give Toothy more plus one counters, and that's really, really awesome. You can make... A really big plus one counter e beater, and if it goes away, you draw cards. But there's a lot of extra detail in this particular pair that is really worth paying attention to. For example, Toothy has that leaves the battlefield, so if he goes back to the command zone sweet you still get that trigger but it also means that if you do things like blink toothy some nutty stuff starts to happen specifically you can stack his triggers if he blinks the battlefield and then immediately returns you'll actually draw the cards after he's back in play which means he'll get a bunch more plus one plus one counters on him and that's just bananas
2: yeah this is kind of the thing they've been doing with simic the last few sets where the thing you kind of want to already be doing they just reward you by letting you draw cards for doing that thing already. (laughs) Sort of like Tatiova. Yeah, yeah, that's what Tatiova did, basically, and this is kind of the same deal here.
1: Well, it's just another busted card that you can play with Deadeye Navigator because that card needed any more help sticking around.
2: Or with Doubling Season, or with, I mean, like, there's just, the, the list is just so long of ways to abuse us in those colors. Speaking of
0: doubling season, that's another detail that's important about peer, actually. Doubling season mentions if an effect would put counters on a permanent you control, it puts twice that many counters instead. But peer is phrased a little differently. He says if one or more counters would be put on a permanent your team controls, that many plus one of those counters are put on instead. And that language distinction is actually really important. Doubling season will double the number of counters that are on your Planeswalkers when they enter the battlefield. But if you activate like a plus two ability of one of your Planeswalkers, that's considered a cost, not an effect. But Pierre doesn't care about cost versus effect. He just cares that any number of counters are put on it at all. So when you use a plus two, you'll actually get three loyalty counters on your Planeswalker. And I think that's really busted.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is a legit Super Friends combo as well in Semic. If you want to play Semic Super Friends, this is the first real combo that lets you interact with those Planeswalkers in a meaningful way. Right. Moving on to some other Planeswalkers, we actually have a new
0: pair of Planeswalkers that can be your commander, and this is pretty crazy. This is another partner pairing, specifically in Is it? We have Will and Rowan Kenrith. Will Kenrith is a 6-mana Planeswalker with 4 loyalty in blue, with a plus 2 until your next turn, up to 2 target creatures each have base power and toughness 0-3 and lose all abilities. Minus two, target player draws two cards, and until your next turn, instant sorcery and planeswalkers that they cast cost two less to cast, and minus eight is ultimate, target player gets an emblem with, whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, copy it, you may choose new targets for the copy. He partners with Rowan, he can be your commander, and that's totally crazy. But we're not even done. That's just him. Rowan, on the other hand, has another six-mana Planeswalker with four loyalty. Plus two during target player's next turn. Each creature that player controls attacks a fable. Minus two, she deals three damage to each tapped creature target player controls. And minus eight, target player gets an emblem with, whenever you activate an ability that isn't a mana ability, copy it. You may choose new targets for the copy. They're crazy. They're twins. They're insane. I don't even know how to take in all that information. They just can do so many things and they're just in your command zone together. It's totally insane.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of these guys. Um, I don't know if I have any interest in building this particular deck, but one thing I kind of like about them is they can probably sit atop a existing um, Mizzix of the Ismagus deck, but basically, you can basically pull out your existing commander and put these two in there, and you're not going to, like right now, Mizzix kind of makes you enemy number one once people see that's your commander they just don't want to let you do anything because they kind of can't this this combo will probably play pretty similarly but it won't generate near the aggro that physics generates and it might let you have a little it might give you a few more different ways to play rather than just trying to get that giant kill everyone spell off too so i think this lends itself to kind of that is it spell slinger deck in a way that's maybe a little more interactive and fun than we get from the existing options.
1: Yeah, you definitely don't get the target on your back that like Mizzix does. Uh, I think one of the big things too is Mizzix is fairly cheap, but you know you only get half of this, and it's still six mana. And there's you have to pay a full twelve mana to get both of these out, and that's you know before you even really get the ball rolling. Right. So I think it's more appropriately costed because Mizzix. Once you stick him and untap, there's a very good chance you are going to win that turn. With these guys, that's not so much the case because they can play defense quite a bit better. They're not so aggressively costed. And just their abilities aren't near as busted as uh, Mizzik's can be too. Mizzix is pretty
0: famous for being, you know, combo city. But I gotta say, I'm really impressed, especially with Will's abilities. His plus two is no joke. He turns two creatures into a zero three with no other abilities. And he goes up in loyalty to do that. He defends himself and increases his loyalty and gets ever closer to an emblem that will copy your spells as she, Rowan, gets ever closer to an emblem that will copy your Planeswalker abilities. There's a lot of stuff to like there. In fact, Will even can reduce the cost of your Planeswalker spell on the next turn so he can actually reduce the mana cost of Rowan when you cast her next. Like, there's so much happening here. I'm really impressed.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's a power-wise, it's you know, I think we all agree it's not nearly as strong as Mizzix would be, but I think it definitely is going to make a more interesting deck.
1: Yeah, interest more interesting is a really, really good way to put it. I, I agree. I mean, just Planeswalkers in general are are fairly complicated. The walls of text on both of them makes them probably a little overwhelming to newer players, but they will lead to much more interesting gameplay for sure.
0: And now that we've alienated our Mizzix players, Matt, why don't you tell us about Regna and Krav? Or Krav. Krav Maga? Let's go with that. Regna and Krav.
1: Yeah, for sure. These are the the commanders I was actually blown away by the most when I first saw them. And if there was a partner from the set that I'm going to build the commander or I'm going to build a deck around, these are probably the ones that I would do. So Regna the Redeemer is five and a white. Legendary Creature Angel partners with Krav the Unredeemed. We'll get to him in a second. But Regna herself, flying at the beginning of each end step, if your team gained life this turn, create two 1-1 white warrior creature tokens. And then Krav the Unredeemed is four and a black for a 3-3 Legendary Creature Demon. Partners with Regna the Redeemer, obviously. Uh, And he has the ability of pay a black, sacrifice X creatures. Target player draws X cards and gains X life. Put X plus one plus one counters on Krov the Unredeemed. So, sack outlet for just a black instant speed, draw some cards, gain some life, make Krov really big, really quick. That is pretty cool. I'm surprised to hear that this is
0: the pair that you were blown away by. I was actually telling Dana just a moment ago that these are the
1: pairs that I'm the least enthused by. Really? And and Mr. Necromancer yourself isn't a fan, huh? It's just, I don't know, it feels a little clunky. Like, I know that you
0: criticized Will and Rowan for maybe having pretty high mana costs, but Regna and Krav, I feel like, have especially high mana costs. And I guess it takes a bit for their, the ball to get rolling for them because you do need other creatures aside from them for Krav to sacrifice so that you can draw a card and then gain life and then make more creature tokens for Krov to then sacrifice. And then, you know, it just it takes another step on top of having them out, I guess.
1: Yeah, I, I really like them. I like Krav by himself, even. If I built this deck, I probably wouldn't cast Regna very often, actually. I would just mainly rely on Krav, his ability. Some of those... Uh, Eldrazi Eldrazi processors from Battle for Zendikar block. Those get really interesting because they have a lot of death triggers and when a creature dies, you know, put a scion in play, then you can sacrifice those scions. Krav has a lot going on for him. I really like him because you can build him as kind of a go wide black-white tokens. You can build him big up like uh, old school Obnixilus. These are really interesting to me. I do agree that they're probably a little overcosted for what they do. But they have some really cool abilities, and just the way that they they line up together, you don't need Regna for Krav to be just a very good black commander. Yeah, that's
0: true. The longer I
2: look at him, the better he looks. I think Krav works works well as a part of a lot of decks too. I think a lot of people will be running him just by himself in a deck or as a solo mm-hmm. mono black commander. I, I think it's worth noting too. You you read it, but like. We should point out at the beginning of each end step, if your team gained life this turn, create two plus one plus one white warriors. That's not just on your turn. Regna can technically make you two tokens on every turn if you have a way to do it.
0: That's a really good point. I completely missed that. I I, I was a little preoccupied, I think, with the your team verbiage, which is new verbiage for the two-headed giant format. But, you know, it doesn't really matter for us in EDH. We usually just play it, you know, I'm on my own. But that each end step, that's really cool. Especially if you use things like Soul Warden or Sundroplet. that's actually a lot of tokens to be making.
1: Yeah, which in turn turns into lots of life to be gained, lots of cards to be drawn, and lots of beats for Krav to deal. That's a really
0: good point. Uh, All right. It. Yeah, you're, you sold me on it. The more that you talk about
2: them, the more excited I get. So fair enough. I think the biggest problem this deck will have is I think there may be too many directions it's pulling you in. I think people are going to want to put in the stacks, Grave Pack kind of effects when the stack creatures, and they're going to want to have multiple ways to gain life, to get multiple tokens off Regna. I think there's going to be a challenge when building this deck where people are going to try to, you know, they're going to want to run 130 cards in it to do all the things they want to do, and you're just going to have to let one of those things go, whether it's the, the stacks portion or whether it's the life gain portion. Or, I think it's it's going to be difficult to do all the things the deck wants you to do to maximize productivity.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that. That's a thing that we noted when we were talking about partners with Nate Burgess. The partners can sometimes pull you in very different directions, so nailing down the exact 100 cards that you want for your deck can be tricky, and I can definitely see that problem arising with Krav. Yeah.
1: I think that that problem is, is a little fixed, though, because you do have partners with a specific commander, mm-hmm. so these two legendaries are, no matter what partner pair you're working with here, they're designed to line up, for the most part, pretty well together. So Hopefully a lot of that scatterbrained rec pages that, you know, we had with the first time partners were out, hopefully that's rectified.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. These guys, when all of these partners come together, they definitely have a very particular focus. Especially with our next pair, another it pair in the set, and that's Zindersplit, the Eye of Wisdom, and Okaun, Eye of Chaos. Zindersplit is a 5-mana 1-4 homunculus who partners with Okaon and says, at the beginning of combat on your turn, you flip a coin until you lose a flip. And whenever a player wins a coin flip, you draw a card. Okaon, meanwhile, partners with Zendersplit and says at the beginning of combat on your turn, flip a coin until you lose a flip. And whenever a player wins a coin flip, double his power and toughness until end of turn, which is pretty great because he's a 3-3 for five mana. So if he doubles, he goes to six. And if you happen to win another coin flip on top of that, he'll go to 12 and it will just exponentially grow from there. These guys are all types of crazy, and at long last, we have a coin-flipping, is it, deck. We have a coin-flip
2: deck, and I think we also have the most important thing here to note is, I guess this is official confirmation that no matter what plane we're on, homunculuses don't have vowels in their name. <laughs> For sure. We've got Thibble and we've got Zindersplit. Definitely
0: a lot of fun with those characters. But what do you guys think of these guys?
1: I think it's something that Kaya, fellow writer, <laughs> EDHREC, is going to have a lot of fun with. It's a little silly. It's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure that, you know, somebody's going to pull the deck out, and the table's going to roll their eyes, but then, like, halfway through the game, they're like, alright, this this was a good time. So, both of these probably could have fit in unstable, but I, I, think, they'll be, I think they'll be decently fun.
0: Yeah, that's definitely true. It has that wacky, who-knows-what's-going-to-happen feel, and as you mentioned, Kaya, she loves herself some chaos, so these definitely feel right up her alley.
2: I like the fact that it's a chaos deck, climb-flip deck that actually can win games, too. Like, this would be much more annoying if it was something that didn't have a way to cause out a game. But I mean, you you can lose to this. I, I'm perfectly fine losing to a chaos effect if it's going to win the game. It's just I don't want to do it and spend all night there. But this isn't that. I feel like this is a kind of a silly, weird chaos coin flip deck that actually is going to win stuff. So I'm not going to build it, but I'm glad that people that want that got their deck.
0: Yeah, that is true. So especially has a way of actually like pushing the game to an end point as opposed to our next pair, which has a way of being a bit of a Zeno's Paradox. I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that, but in the meanwhile, Matt, do you want to tell us about Virtus and Gorm?
1: Sure. So Virtus the Veiled is two and a black for a 1-1 Azra Assassin, partners with Gorm the Great, and Virtus has Death Touch, and then whenever Virtus the Veiled deals combat damage to a player, that player loses half their life rounded up, Gorm the Great, on the other hand, is three and a green for a 2-7 giant warrior, partners with Virtus the Veiled. He has Vigilance, and Gorm the Great must be blocked if able, and Gorm must be blocked by two or more creatures if able. So he's a big body that's going to attract a lot of blockers, whereas Virtus, he's going to sneak behind the lines and get that trigger going. Yeah,
0: they definitely partner up really well with Gorm, making everyone, hey, look at me, you have to block me, and Virtus is just like, bam, now your life totals at 19. And what I meant sort of like with the Zeno's paradox is that that's that paradox where you have to like cross a room, but before you can do that, you have to get halfway across. And then before you can make up the next bit of the distance, you can only go halfway, and then another halfway, halfway, halfway. And then you're only ever approaching the end, but you never quite get there because of that one half junction. There's a bit of a feeling like that with Virtus and Gorm, because He'll hit you for one and then cut your life in half, but that won't necessarily end the game. You're going to need a little bit of extra oomph to finish that game out, but they're in black and green, which means they definitely have the ability to get you there, so that's why I'm really excited about Virtus.
2: Well, and Gorm kind of gets you that extra oomph, right? Because he's swinging in as a 2-7. He has to get blocked. He has to get blocked by two creatures, so the other creatures you run that are going to sneak through, and I would guess you're going to see a lot of decks running on combat damage triggers because Gorm's gonna encourage stuff to get through and deal damage. I think that it makes it a lot easier for Virtus to get through. it makes it a lot easier for other things to get through as well. So kind of like like Okon in the other pair, this has the, the pair has a way to work together to win games.
0: Yeah, super, super exciting. I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, I could play nothing but green and black for my commander career, and I'd be really happy. And I like that these guys open the door to a very new type of green and black commander strategy. Usually we'll see something like necromancy, or Mazarek has plus one counters, and then Glissa has bringing artifacts from the dead. But Virtus and Gorm are just like, I'm going to hit you, and it's going to be painful.
2: And you're going to see weird stuff that doesn't get played very frequently, like maybe Liliana's Reaver or like Scythe Claw or something, things that can sneak through when Gorm is soaking up the damage. Yeah, it's going to be a fun deck to see. This is probably my favorite pair of the group, just because it's going to generate some really unique deck builds. For sure.
1: Yeah, I am, I instantly thought of Graveblade Marauder when I saw Virtus, just because that, you know, sneaks through as a, a one power creature. All of a sudden that trigger happens and they lose... I think it's life equal to number of cards in their graveyard or something like that. Creature cards, that's right.
0: Oh, the Graveblade Marauder. There's also, I think it's like mm-hmm. Guilt Feeder is another possible option. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of, you can make an entire deck around sneaking through damage while one of your other commanders is, is taking the heat. It's super cool. We have one final pair and that is Korvath and Sylvia. Dana, do you
2: want to tell us about them? I absolutely can. We have Korvath Bright Flame, who's five and a red. And a a legendary creature, Dragon, 3-4, Flying and Haste, and it says, Knights your team controls have Flying and Haste. And you have Sylvia Brightspear, who's a human knight, two and a white cast for a 2-2, with a double strike, and says, Dragons your team control have double strike. So if you've ever wanted to build a knight and dragon combo, this is your combo deck. It is pretty cool. Usually we see knights versus dragons. They don't get along,
0: but this is the how-to-train-your-dragon pair right here. They really help each other out. Korvath will give all of your ground creatures flying and make them faster, and Sylvia will be like, Ur-dragon, I hear ya, bam, do a bunch of damage. Obviously you can't run the Ur-dragon in this deck, but she just really synergizes with dragons in a way that I do find creative. This is a Boros pair, and we always know that Boros has kind of some problems in EDH. It has a couple of challenges that people are reticent to try and overcome. What do you guys think about this particular Boros pair?
1: I like the flavor on this one a lot. I think it's really neat. Uh, it's kind of like that, you know, the playing World of Warcraft. You have your mounts taking you all over the place. Uh, and just red-white knights. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a non-zero number of those decks out there. Um, I, I think it's fun. It's probably the most flavorful, I think, of all the different partners in this set. Uh, and that's saying a lot because I think all of them have a lot of flavor and add a lot to kind of the story and the world of, that's going on in Battle Bond. But yeah, I really like them.
2: I do too. Um, I have a bit of the same complaint here as I had in Dominaria about... as um, it I.L. Knight of Windgrace? The knight legendary commander there? Mm-hmm. I wanted that to, to be Mardu and have some red in it. And in this case, I wanted to have a little bit of black in it because there's so many good knights in all three of those colors. And once again, we're we have a, a a good pair here that wants knights, but it's missing the third color as well. So I would have I wish this combo could have somehow been a three-color deck. I think it would have been a lot stronger adding black um, instead of being stuck in Boros. But again, it's going to let you build a unique Boros deck that's different than anything else out there. I don't know how strong it's going to be, but I think it's going to be a cool deck to see.
1: You don't get everything you want, Dana. Right,
2: exactly. Well, maybe the next time they'll listen, like they did with partners.
0: <laughs> hey. Fingers crossed. We have two more commanders that are not partnered that show up in this set. The first one is Najila, the Blade Blossom. This is a three-mana, 3-2 human warrior. And not only did Dana predict something, but Matt also predicted something. A short while ago... He said there should be more warrior tribal commanders, and now we have one. Najila says, whenever a warrior attacks, you may have its controller create a 1-1 white warrior creature token that is tapped and attacking. That's not all. She, like General Tazri, has five colored mana symbols in her text box, and that means that she can be a five-color commander. Specifically, what she does is you can pay white, blue, black, red, green to untap all attacking creatures. They gain trample, lifelink and haste until end of turn after this phase is an additional combat phase and you can activate that ability only during combat this lady's crazy she's a total like curve out of nowhere i did not see her coming man i gotta expect that you're pretty excited about her right
1: i am well, well so wizards listen to dana so they obviously listen to me as well uh it's just proof that mark rosewater listens to the 8h rec cast
0: <laughs> so are you thinking you're going to build a Najila deck
1: I'm really tempted to, actually. We were going through, our editor, Henry Stukenborg. we were going through on our Slack channel just brainstorming, holy crap, this is a warrior, this is a warrior, this is a warrior, just going down the list of all these awesome cards in the past two years even, not digging super deep, just all the cards off the top of our heads that were just happened to be warriors, and there were so many cards. Just, there's so much good stuff. And then you, you add in cons block like I was talking about on our tribal set, Uh, You go back even further to, you know, Lorwyn when you had a bunch of warriors going on there too. Like, there are so many good warriors that you can put in here that are going to work really well with, you know, putting warrior tokens into play, getting extra combat steps. Like, you have combat celebrant, so if you have a way to copy that somehow, you could just keep taking combat after combat after combat, and it's just wild.
2: And what's nice about those warriors being so strong is sometimes you get decks like this where... Yeah, it's a strong deck. Like, well, I'll mention Joda just briefly, who we talked about at the start of the show. Joda lets you put giant bomb things into play for five mana. But the problem is, if Joda gets shut down, whether, you know, it gets stolen or gets deep freezed or something, then you're stuck trying to hard cast nine drops, right? That's makes for a really challenging deck. If someone shuts down Najila, you've still got a grip full of warriors, all of whom, probably have really good abilities or they wouldn't be in your deck in the first place. And they're all pretty aggressively costed for the most part. So this is a deck where, yeah, Naji was awesome and she's going to make your deck that much more awesome. But like, you're going to drop plenty of hot creatures in the field just as is that can keep you alive and keep you in the game until you get her back on board. It's going to be really difficult to deal with.
0: Yeah, she definitely is one of those commanders that isn't like hyper dependent on her to be out for the deck to function well.
2: She doesn't even need that last ability, right? Like, if it just said, whenever a warrior attacks, you may have its controller create a 1-1 one, one white warrior creature token. If that's all it did, that's a really good commander, right? Because it's not non-creature token. So the warriors you make then make more warriors next turn, and the warriors you're playing are making more warriors. If that's all she did... She's a legit, really strong warrior commander. Oh that's not God. all she does. <laughs> this
0: is this is the second time that I've misread something. It's whenever a warrior attacks, right. She creates a thing. Not whenever one or yeah. more warriors attack, right? Oh, okay. so
1: the, so the, yeah, those tokens, those tokens create more tokens. It's insane.
2: Okay, yeah, that's everything intense. stacks. If that's all she did, she's fantastic, and she does way more than that.
1: Yeah. Well, and like you put in, like just throwing a brutal horde chief into this deck and you just have one turn where you destroy the table because you have brutal horde chief so whenever creature you control attacks you drain an opponent or the defending player but he also has that ability for 3 and you know the boros hybrid you know creatures your opponent's control block this turn of fable and you choose how they block you can choose them to all gang up on one token and then the rest of the table just gets blown away
0: yeah, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff happening with Najila. I'm really happy that you guys corrected the way that I was reading her. That's really sick. We've got one last legendary creature, and this one is also sick looking. It's Grothama the All-Devouring, a 5-mana 10-8. Dana, do you want to tell
2: us about this weird pinata worm? I certainly can. <laughs> said a 5-mana 10-8 for a legendary creature worm, and it says all other creatures have... Whatever this creature attacks, you may have it fight Gramatha, all devouring. When Gramatha leaves the battlefield, each player draws cards equal to the amount of damage dealt to Gramatha this turn by sources they controlled.
0: I had to reread this card like four times before I completely understood. When this comes out, it becomes the raid boss in World of Warcraft. Everyone else can fight it if they want to, and if it dies, they'll draw cards if they fought it a
2: lot. Right. Well, I, I would guess it's essentially ba- it's, it's more League of Legends, which is kind of eSport. What this set is based on, because there's a boss in League of Legends, and I think in Dota there's a similar one as well. That's basically a worm that your team fights for a big raid buff. Gotcha. So I, I'm assuming that's the inspiration for this. Specifically, is is Baron Nashor from League of Legends? Do you see this?
0: helming a deck anytime soon a mono green worm deck i can certainly see worm tribal finally being a thing i guess but it's a very curious ability
1: i still even after we've read it like five times since we sat down together i still don't know what this card does
2: it's so confusing the the place it has a real true home i think is in galta primal hunger Um, which is a dinosaur we got in Ixalan that's the the 10 and 2 green for 12-12, but it costs X less for each, where X is the total power of creatures you control. So, if you have the worm in play first, Galta then costs 2 to cast. But if you have it the other way around, if you have Galta out and you cast this worm, Galta swings at somebody, deals 12 damage to the worm, kills the worm, and you draw all the cards in the world. And your commander doesn't die. So basically, it's it's a 5-mana draw 12 in Galta who may also enable you to play your commander for no mana. Yeah, that's
0: certainly a bizarre commander. We've got a whole bunch of legendary creatures here in this set. So, let's return to that bet that we mentioned at the top of the episode. Do you guys want to make another one? Game on! Alrighty. In this case, let me go first. I'm going to bet... That will and rowan the planeswalker partner pairs i think that of the new commanders from battle bond will and rowan are going to show up as the most built commanders from Battlebond.
2: what do you guys think dana what's your pick i like will and rowan i think people are going to want to build them just because it's your only chance to put two planeswalkers in the zone but i think in looking at dominaria i think people like things that are strong and relatively simple I think Maldrotha is gives you a very clean way to win the game, and it's very strong. I think, to a degree, Jota is the same way. You know what you want to build there. It's relatively powerful. I think the of Commanders might be a touch complex. So I'm going to say Pir and Toothy. I think Simic is really strong. I think it's a really clean path to victory. People can very easily visualize how they want to build the deck. So I think that's where I am going to put my money is on Peer and Toothy.
0: Eh, it's a pretty safe bet. I could, I could see it. I just feel like people are going to be so excited to have Planeswalker Commanders again, though. So we'll, we'll have to see what the stats show us. In other words, listeners, you should go build a bunch of Will Kenrith and uh, Rowan Kenrith partner decks. Please help me out. I don't want to owe Matt another Multrother or
2: anything like that. Matt, what are you thinking?
1: So for Battle Bond, my set pick for most played commander is gonna be Najila the Blade Bl- Blossom. I all three of us got obviously very excited about this card, what it does. It got this whole slack channel for all the EDH rec riders just oozing with excitement. We're all ready just to see how crazy this is, how many nuts out plays, how many, you know, how many opponents can you kill in one turn with all this going on with one card. And like we said, even if it you don't combo out, even if you don't get your chromatic mana to have a bunch of combat steps, you still have a deck full of very aggressive, very, you know, well-costed warriors that are ready to do battle. So I think Najila is going to be the most played commander from Battle Bond. And I think it might be close. I don't think it's going to be the landslide like I thought Moldrotha would be, but I think Najila finally gives warriors a good tribal commander. And it's just a nuts great commander, so that's my pick.
0: I hope you're wrong. Will and Rowan, that's my bet, and then Pierre and Toothy for Dana, Najila for Matt. Listeners, you heard it here. Build a bunch of Rowan and Ken that. Anyway. Daddy needs us cards today. <laughs> No, I don't want to owe you another card. And maybe we forgot to mention, that is the stakes of the bet. Whoever wins, they're going to be getting a copy of that card from the other two hosts. So I'm really, really hoping that I win this one and I get Will from Matt and Rowan from Dana. It's going to be a great union. So we'll check back on our bets for our next set review when the next set comes out. But for now, let's move on to some popular non-commander cards. Let's linger a second on some of the reprints that are happening in this set. We won't talk about them too much because we do want to talk about the statistics that we anticipate happening for newer cards, but there are some fantastic reprints in this set, like Doubling Season and Land Tax. Do you guys have any favorite reprints? Because I sure do. There's some crazy
2: stuff happening in Battle Bond. Um, I'm most excited to see Land Tax get a reprint. It probably should be in most white decks. They're so desperate for card draw, and while it's not truly draw, it. You know, it's card advantage. You're getting lands to make sure you hit your landfall almost every turn. It had gotten pretty expensive. The foil, the only existing foil was a judge foil that was like 150 bucks too. So now you can get a foil of it for probably a reasonable price. So that's one I'm really glad to see um, show up as a reprint because it just it needed it, and there's a lot of people that wanted copies for their decks. And it's a very reasonable and fair card as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I think Land Tax is one of the cards I was waiting the most. You know, all the master sets that have been coming out, they did Balance and all these, all you know, all the bad white mythics. Uh, Land Tax is the one that I've been waiting for for a long time, just because I love the card. I want it in every white deck, like you said, Dana. Uh, it's 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 about time that Land Tax got reprinted. I'm also uh, super excited. Besides True Name Nemesis for the the Spike sixty card player in me. Micasynth Lattice actually I think is super relevant to have being reprinted besides the obvious doubling season which is probably the calling card for reprints uh, but Micasynth Lattice you know when Brea came out there weren't I don't think there are a whole bunch of people that really knew about Micasynth Lattice and then Brea came out and made that card very popular and made you know a card that was already about 20 bucks made it even more and so I think having Micasynth Lattice reprinted uh, is going to be a very good thing for a lot of players out there and that's the one that makes everything into an artifact? Makes everything into an artifact, and you can pay colorless or mana as though, or any color to to cast all your stuff. Basically, it makes everything gray, I guess, with the flavor <laughs> behind it.
0: Gotcha. Well, I hope that you play it against me, and I hope I cast Vandal Blast when you do. There's so no, many no, no, no. cool reprints that are happening here. We mentioned doubling season, Lantax, Microsynthlatus, True Name Nemesis. There's also Seedborn Muse, Mystic Confluence, Diabolic Intent. They've got like this is the level of reprint that I really, really love to see in supplemental products or or other like draft experimentation sets from Wizards. So I'm, I mean, if just on those merits alone, I'm really excited to play battle bond and to open up all these packs but we've also got a whole bunch of new cards with other new mechanics that are really exciting to talk about too so let's move on to them dana can you tell us a little
2: bit about friend or foe cards i can indeed that's a new mechanic that shows up here for the very first time uh friend and foe reads for each player choose friend or foe, and then an ability happens to all the friends usually a positive one and a negative one happens to all your foes so in Two-Headed Giant, that flexes, and you know you would obviously pick friend for your partner and foe for your enemies, but that really flexes over into EDH in that you just pick yourself for your friend for the positive and pick all your opponents for the foe. It's a really a clever mechanic that works really well in Two-Headed Giant, but it doesn't sacrifice anything in Commander. It works really well there as well. I think that's a, kind of an ingenious little bit of, of uh, mechanical construction on Wizard's part to make something that works so well in this format, and is also desirable in a totally different format. So what's a good example of a friend or foe card that you like? Um, I think my favorite one is probably Piers Wim. Um, it's three and a green for a sorcery, and for each player, choose friend or foe. Each friend searches our library for a land card. It puts it on a battlefield tapped, then shuffles our library, and each foe sacrifices an artifact or enchantment. The important part there, though, is it's for a land card, not a basic land card. So like you and your teammate, if you're playing to hit a giant, can go get you know the perfect mana fixing. Or if you're not playing, with just battle bond stuff, you can go grab that you know guy's cradle, or or one of you grabs Cabal Coffers and one of you grabs Urborg, whatever. While your opponent simultaneously gets set back an artifact or enchantment. And you know once in a while, sure someone has a treasure token out or someone has something that they don't mind losing like that. But fairly often. That's gonna let you get a really busted land, and it's gonna make your opponents lose something that's relatively valuable to them as well. I think that's a really good tempo hit and a really good piece of advantage for you all baked into one spell.
1: Yeah, I I very much agree. Pier's whim is one card I'm I'm super excited to play. Just getting any land of your choice, I, yeah, it's it's a very good effect that I think plays around the political things very well too, and especially for Green. Green doesn't have very many good political cards and i'm not a political player but i I think this is a very good way to do it right that is
0: also i mean dana's reticent to do any group hug shenanigans but you could get some friends around and say hey i'll give you a land if you do something nice for me so there are potential
2: group hug applications with these cards too sure It, it gives you the option to do that but it isn't like you're not locked into that so yeah that's it's perfect in that way too because it's not something where you're stuck helping people you just have the option if it's beneficial to you I think it's just a great design.
0: Yeah, Women in particular, I love that they stapled a Tribute to the Wild to a Reap So. That's like a really <laughs> great design. I'm also exactly. a fan of Split's Judgment. This is a five-mana blue sorcery. For each player, you choose friend or foe, and each friend creates a token that's a copy of a creature they control, but each foe returns a creature they control to their owner's hand. That can really mess up the day of a Voltron player, and it can also just... It does blue things. I love making copies of stuff, so... That imbalance feels amazing. A lot of these kind of almost feel like a, a mini-spell version of the Praetors from Phyrexia, such as Elish Norn, I'm going to give my stuff plus two, but everyone else's stuff minus two. Zindersplit's Judgment feels a bit like that too. I'm going to get extra creature, but you're going to lose lots of creature. And I just I love the way that that feels. That spell also really intrigues me. Matt, is there a friend or foe card that you like?
1: Um, I think Pier's is probably my favorite. I'm with Dana on that one. I think Regna's uh, Regna's sanction kind of underwhelming, just tapping people down. I don't think that's really a, a very big impact. Corvath's fear, I think, will be all right, but Piers' whim far and away is, I think, is going to be the best friend or foe card.
0: Yeah, I would I would probably have to agree. I can see a lot of places where I'm going to be putting that Piers' whim card into my decks. We've also got another mechanic here, and that is Assist. This is another new mechanic that is really good for Two-Headed Giant, because it actually allows your teammate to pay mana on your behalf. An example of a card with Assist is Play of the Game. This is an 8-mana sorcery that exiles all non-land permanents. It's a lot of mana to pay for that effect, but it has Assist, so another player can pay up to 6 of this spell's cost, which is really great when you have a teammate, but which also might have a bit of political... Uh, implications in a commander game with multiple players there could presumably be a person across the table from you who recognizes a threat on the other side of the table from both of you and wants to help you cast this spell to get rid of that person's stuff what do you guys think of the new assist mechanic
2: i think it's an interesting i think it's a great two-headed giant giant mechanic i don't know if it scales over to commander quite as well as friend or foe particularly because you're reliant on your opponent's Number one, to go along with you, but but maybe even more importantly, number two, to have mana available to help you cast a spell. So you're, number one, you need somebody who wants to help you, because not everyone's going to want to help you, and they need to have the mana to be able to help you cast a spell. That's a lot of variables to hit, and I think maybe it's worthwhile on some of the spells that you're like, well, if I get help, great. If I don't, meh, it's still fine. Play the game in particular, I'm not sure if... It's worth running an eight-mana board wipe to take the chance that you have to pay the whole eight when there's so many ones that are cheaper, more consistently. But I, th- I think it's a cool mechanic, and I think there are some cards where it it really is a, is is positive. Game plan being would be the first one I would look at six mana and game plan to basically do a time twister. That's not like amazing, but you know, time reversal is five mana, so you're paying one more worst case scenario, and you have the option to have somebody else pay a chunk of that cost. I think that's a really good mechanic. On that card, it's a really good mechanic.
0: Right. So that time twister effect you mentioned, that's every player shuffling their hand in graveyard into the library and then drawing seven cards, and then you exile the game plan. So if someone else on the other side of the table is dead on cards, you can sort of negotiate with them to refill everyone's hand and maybe mess up the person who's ahead and loves their hand. That's a potential application there.
2: Mm-hmm. But if you can't, like if they don't want to pay it, yeah, you're, it's probably worth doing it for six mana a lot of the times anyway. Whereas play the game, I feel like paying eight for that is something that's going to hurt almost every time if no one can help with it. Whereas game plan, if no one helps, there's probably plenty of times it's still worth doing. Matt, what do you think about assist? I enjoy
1: assist a lot, actually. I think it's a really cool mechanic. Like, like you said, play the game, I think people are going to skim over a little more than they should. Game plan, though, and out of bounds... You know, if you have one player that's pulling way far ahead and you guys want to catch up as a table, I think it's something that's very, very cool. It's, it, it's unique. It's a good way to make sure that you're reining in that one player. So if you're, you know, sitting down, two of you guys don't have decks that are near as powerful, you can use these to kind of unofficially team up and make some packs and keep that one combo player from getting out of hand really quick. Out of Bounds is a a counter-target spell for a blue mana, maybe. So, you know, if you're falling behind and somebody's about to do something really crazy, you can talk to somebody else at the table and just say, hey, man, we're going to lose next turn if we don't counter this. Can I borrow three mana? And then you have the Out of Bounds. Right,
0: so Out of Bounds has a typical cost of 4, but another player can pay up to 3 of that cost, so it could just cost you that 1 mm-hmm. and counter someone's spell. That is actually probably also my favorite of the assist cards because it doesn't demand too much from another player. Like, play of the game, that requires probably a lot of help that another player maybe not be willing to lend you too much mana, but Out of Bounds only asks, like, hey, can I have 1, can I have 2 mana, and help stop that guy from winning this turn? It's a really sick card
1: yeah i i think they're very very good cards when it comes down to are we going to be able to catch up to the one person that's probably playing a deck that is more powerful than you know objectively than the rest of the decks of the table it's just going to help keep that one person in line that just you know can't read the table uh and it's going to make for a lot more enjoyable games i think i just the mechanic is very well designed just the teamwork that goes into it and it doesn't have to be the same player every single time it doesn't have to be your your teammate if you're playing you know 1v1v1v1 if it's just a four-player pod you know anybody can do it any given turn which i i really appreciate as well Right,
0: but do note, while you can pick different players for each assist spell, you can only pick one player at a time for yes, an assist one spell. So right. Yeah, that's just a good rules note to, to, to take into account when you look at all of those assist cards. Let's move on to some of the other cards as well. In particular, I want to talk about a new set of dual lands that we've got. An example being Bountiful Promenade, which is a land that enters the battlefield tapped unless you have two or more opponents, and it taps for green or white. We've got a cycle of all of those for the allied color pairs, like black and blue and black and red, all of those colors that are next to each other on the color wheel. But man, those are cool lands. You're always going to have multiple opponents in a game of EDH, so these will always enter untapped. I love these.
2: I mean, the worst way to look at them um, is to say that they're strictly better versions of the fast lands from Scars of Mirrodin and Kaladesh because those come into play tapped on turn three or is it turn four consistently, these are only going to come into play tapped on, you know what, turn eight or nine or ten or fifteen or twenty or what depending on all your meta goes. Like these are always gonna probably be better than the fast lands. And the vast majority of the time, they're just ETB untapped duels full stop. That's just what they are.
0: Right, so these lands are a bit like the assist cards where they only get worse the less opponents that you have. But at the beginning of the game, they're fantastic.
2: Right, and do you really care if your land comes into play tapped on turn 12 or turn 14 or whatever? I mean, maybe sometimes, but that's the same thing that's going to happen with the fast lands from Scars as well. And those come into play tapped on turn 5 and these do not. So I, I would guess if you're playing a two-color deck, these are going to be in it. Like, I just don't know why you would not put these in pretty much any two-color deck. I
1: think you put these in just any deck really in general. If, if you can play it and they're going to get your mana, I think you play these lands. I think they're really well designed. They yeah, they just work very, very well. The only complaint I've seen about them is that they're not fetchable with a
0: fetch land or with a Farseek or something, but that is a small price to pay.
1: Yeah that's, yeah, that's having your cake and eating it too. I think if that's what you're nitpicking about these lands, then you need to simmer down a little bit because they're just a great design. Alrighty, let's try and zoom
0: through a couple of other really cool cards that we have here. Matt, can you tell us about Arena Rector?
1: Arena Rector. So this one actually I think Dana would would love to explain, but I'll go through it real quick. Uh, So it's kind of like an Academy Rector, only it's for the Arena. So it's a human cleric for three and a white for a one-two human cleric. Uh, When an Arena Rector dies, you may exile it. If you do, search your library for a Planeswalker card, put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. So, there's a lot of ways to, to sacrifice this. It's Commander, after all. But you get to search your library and put any Planeswalker onto the battlefield. So, if you want that Ugin turn 3, this is your this is your number right here.
2: Yeah, so like if you're running a Degero with Eyes Open Super Friends deck and Mono White that already has a handful of sac outlets, so you can sacrifice your Commander and recast him to get more Planeswalkers. I feel like this is a really good fit. So you, then. So me, <laughs> and like the four other people on EDH that have Dejero <laughs> with Eyes Open decks. But but not just Dejero. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a ton of other Super Friends decks running white, whether it's Atraxa in four colors or Angus McKenzie in three. And this is just going to go into every deck that can run it. In addition to just being in decks in general who want to slap a Planeswalker in play, even if Super Friends is not what the theme is.
0: Yeah, definitely worthy of the mythic rarity. Arena Rector is very impressive, and I'm sure we're going to see this one everywhere. Let's move on now to another cool card, and that's Spellseeker. This is a 1-1 one, one for 2 and a blue, a human wizard, and when it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for an instant or sorcerer card with converted mana cost 2 or less, reveal it, put it into your hand, and then shuffle your library. This is a very bizarre blue wizard tutor that fetches you a tiny spell. It's a bit like Imperial Recruiter or Recruiter of the Guard, the red and white creatures that go and fetch you either a creature with power two or less from your deck or toughness two or less from your deck. But in this case, it's a spell with converted mana cost two or less. What do you guys think of Spellseeker?
2: Um, It's nice to see that the Trinket Mage cycle is expanding into spells, um, first of all. I think that the fact that it's a wizard is super relevant because we just had that wizard tribal deck last year and Kess and Anala both interact really nicely with this spell, whether it's Kess you know, letting you recast the spell that you went and got with Spellseeker or Anala making a copy of Spellseeker and letting you get a second spell or just generally as a tutor effect in blue. I mean, it's just a fantastic card. Fetch target Cyclonic Rift. Right, exactly. Yeah, Rift is only two. Fandel Blast is only one if you're playing red blue, which is you know both an island cast. There's just a lot of stuff you can grab with this that's really, really effective, and it's a great card.
1: Is good. I agree. <laughs> I can't add anything else. I mean you guys covered all you, you grab a cyclonic rift and win the game. So Alright, Matt. Do you want to tell us about Archfiend of Despair next? I can. This one I thought was interesting. Uh, so Archfiend of Despair, six and two black. For a 6-6 creature demon, flying, your opponents can't gain life. And at the beginning of each end step, each end step again, uh, each opponent loses life equal to the life that player lost this turn. So, doubles down on all the damage that they do or any life loss they have. This one, I man, if it weren't 8 mana, I think this card would be crazy good.
0: Yeah, it's a bit like this, the enchantment or wound reflection, but on a demon... I can't make up my mind about how I feel about Archfiend of Despair. On the one hand, I can acknowledge that, like, yeah, that's a really powerful ability. But on the other, it feels clunky. It has flying, which is a great evasion ability, but it doesn't have, for example, trample. Which is probably for the best if it had flying and trample and it doubled all life lost. That's probably too much going on. That's probably more power than I should be wishing for. But something about it still feels a little off to
2: me. I don't know. Am I wrong? I think eight, it, I agree, eight is a ton of mana. I think this plays really nicely with things like our new buddies, uh, Virtus and Gorm, where Virtus swings in and makes the person lose half their life. And then you <laughs> drop this afterwards and they just die. I think, I, I think you don't just blindly slam it in a deck, but I think there's some decks where it's going to just kill people. If you calf it at the correct time. That's a great point. And actually Kalia loves to see
0: this guy too.
1: I was about to yeah. say, it's another stupid, crazy, expensive demon for Kalia to fart around with. On that lovely image, Matt, do you want to tell us about Arcane Artisan? I, I suppose. We'll segue. Uh, so Arcane Artisan is two and a blue for an 0-3 human wizard and it has the ability, pay two and a blue, tap it. Target player draws a card, then exiles a card from their hand. If a creature card is exiled this way, that player creates a token that's a copy of that card. Then when Arcane Artisan leaves the battlefield, exile all tokens created with it at the beginning of the next end step. What a bizarre
0: creature. This feels like a really big stretch for Blue.
2: It feels like a like something that was created as a legendary creature at one point in time and they decided they did not want that in the command zone.
0: <laughs>
2: I can definitely see that.
0: Yeah, I can see a lot of really cool use cases with this, but there's a slight fragility to it as well. Arcane Artisan actually has to stick around for any of this to occur. Plus, it is three mana investment up front to put the creature on the battlefield. Then you have to wait a turn, pay another three and tap it to actually get that effect. And that creature that you make won't be able to attack that turn yet. So there's a lot of really excellent stuff happening here, especially if you, you know, discard a Jenga Taxius or a huge Eldrazi, for example. Those are excellent cards to, quote, cheat into play, make a, a token copy of. But there's something still sort of house of glass about it. I feel like this might be a little more dangerous than it lets on, kind of both in how powerful it is and how fragile it is. What do you guys think?
1: I think there's just so much going on. It's really hard to process the card properly. It's kind of like our legendary worm buddy that we talked about earlier. It's really hard to evaluate the card. It, there's just so much going on, and I, I think it—if I played with it or against it a couple times—I might be able to have a better idea of what I think. But right now, I'm just—I'm trying to process it, and I—I it, I think it's too much for too little. But then that probably means that I'm completely wrong, and it's a bonkers card, and it's going to be
2: insane. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I think I'm, I'm probably missing some some combo synergy that's going to be a game-winning piece in some deck. Just looking at it now, I feel like you know maybe in Anala, where you're going to be running a deck full of ETB wizards anyway, so you're drawing cards and making a copy of the wizard that you were going to cast and get a, some kind of an ETB trigger off of. On top of that, I think it's probably decent there. I think something like Temnit, Vizier of Nactumen from um, Emonkhet, that lets you make a creature unblockable or a token creature unblockable. I think this in that deck is a way to create more strong creature tokens that swing in for damage too and are unblockable. So I think it maybe has a home in there. But it's one of those cards I think that at some point someone breaks and I'm just not seeing it or haven't looked hard enough to find that just
0: yet. I really like the Temet acknowledgement there, since he makes creature tokens unblockable. That's a really cool find. And that's part of the reason that we want to talk about all of these non-commander cards, is to see where they'll fit, where you can expect high statistics on EDH rec to show up for all of these different cards. Temet seems like a, just a total home run for Arcane Artisan. We talked about a lot of battle-bound cards so far, but what are some other things that you guys think might see a lot of play in EDH? What are some other cards that stand out to you?
2: Um, I personally like Sentinel Tower quite a bit. It's an artifact for four mana. Um, Whenever an instant or sorcery spell is cast during your turn, Sentinel Tower deals one damage to any target equal to one plus the number of instant and sorcery spells cast before that spell this turn. Um, So if you cast four spells this turn, you're dealing five plus four plus three plus two that's a pretty significant amount of damage in some decks that are capable of casting multiple spells per turn. So it's another storm enabler, but I don't think your deck even necessarily needs to be a storm deck. I've got a Talrin deck that is pretty much built around cantrips to make tokens, and I can just put this in the deck and not have to even try to do anything different than I'm already doing in those turns where I you know, brainstorm into ponder, into preordain, into portent i mean i'll throw an extra 13 damage to someone's face for doing the thing i was already doing so i think there's decks like that that this is a piece in those decks that they don't need to change their playstyle at all or don't need to do anything different and it just magically adds value to their deck playing the way it was already playing
1: yeah i it's it feels a lot like what everybody wanted dynavolt tower to be when they first saw it
0: Yeah, it's definitely a really intriguing card. goes alongside Aetherflux Reservoir as a possible storm wind condition. It's nice to see those two buddies.
1: Matt, what about you? Uh, So the card I'm really excited about is green go figure, Uh, but Bramble Sovereign, I think is super interesting. Uh, So it's two and two green for a 4-4. And whenever another non-token creature enters the battlefield, you may pay one and a green if you do. That creature's controller creates a token that's a copy of that creature. So... The interesting part to me is if somebody gets something, you can copy their creature for them, not just for your own creatures. So if there's somebody, you know, you can make another one of those political deals, you know, somebody gets a Woodfall Primus and you can copy it for them so they can blow up something else that's important to the game state. Uh, I think it's super interesting that Green has all these tools now to kind of interact politically with other players at the table, which before it didn't really. On top of that, you know, you can... You know, Just pay one in a grain and copy your own stuff and keep, you know, keep the party going. I think it's a really cool card. I'm very interested to play with it a couple times and see what decks uh, can really take advantage of it. You know what's better than one Crater Hoof Behemoth?
0: Two, Two Crater Hoof Behemoths.
1: <laughs> doubling up.
0: Speaking of doubling, another card that I'm excited to see is Bonus Round. This is a red sorcerer for one red red that says, Until end of turn, whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery spell... They copy it and may choose new targets for the copy. This looks pretty sick. Usually we'll have cards like Reverberate or Twincast or something like that, which let you copy a spell afterwards, but this one will actually set up your turn for a whole bunch of really cool spells. And especially if you're doing things like Dana mentioned with Sentinel Tower, even just copying a couple of cantrips can put you really, really far ahead. Copying one spell, two spells with this, three spells, four, I mean... Yeah, that's a whole lot of mana that you'd have to pay, but they'll all chain into each other if you're doing a Spellslinger deck right, and I think that this is going to see a lot of play in things like Mizzix, because it just sets you up for a really powerful turn.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a strong spell that's going to... And it, it it works in like a red-blue spell, Spellslinger deck, but I think it probably also works in kind of that Kess um, wizard deck that's running a gazillion one or two mana removal spells as well, because... Not only are you able to recast them with cast, you're casting two copies of them. So I think there's a lot of places that want this.
1: Yeah, I, I can see like Nekasar decks wanting to play this because they, they cast at the beginning of the turn to get the party started. Then they play a couple of wheel effects and they can probably finish the table off and, you know, two or three spells if everything's getting doubled. There are so
0: many great non-commander cards that are in this set. We don't have time to talk about all of them. We've probably been talking too long about them. (laughs) But there is one last one that I do want to acknowledge before we move on. And that is the card Last One Standing. This is a red-black card. One red-black sorcery that says choose a creature at random and destroy the rest. I felt like it would be a sin not to talk about this really bizarre Rakdos Wrath of God. Because it's just so weird what
2: do you guys think of it i like it yeah i do too i remember when um uh what was the three mana wrath out of emmonket bontu's um, last reckoning Bantus last reckoning right and which i didn't like but there were some people i remember telling me like they really want that turn three wrath being able to you know to wrath on turn three for them and their deck build was worth losing essentially the next turn because you have lands on untapped well this lets you do that without the downside that's nearly as negative once in a while sure it's going to whiff and like the creature randomly chosen that survives is going to be that ural you know wearing 14 auras or whatever but the vast majority of the time this is just a really really efficient board wipe
1: yeah plus it's just a good chaos card so you know back to kaya she's going to love this card i know she brought it up a couple times but yeah just i mean it's a wrath for three mana and if it's a mana dork that's left over then Oh, well, but I I think just the it's going to progress the game state in a good way uh, that, you know, the chaos cards sometimes don't. I think this is a good way to have that chaos happening.
2: One point I'd like to kind of make, too, since we've gone through all these cards about the set as a whole. And I kind of touched on this before talking about how a lot of the mechanics scale. But this is kind of a conspiracy ish set, right? That kind of fills that void for multiplayer Mm -hmm. sets in the summer with a bunch of reprints. The problem Conspiracy had was there were so many of those draft cards that felt really bad to crack in a pack if you weren't specifically doing Conspiracy. Like, I go to Target, you know, to buy groceries or, like, duct tape or zip ties or tarps or whatever, and I oftentimes grab a pack off the shelf just to crack a pack. That felt bad, grabbing a Conspiracy pack to crack it open just to, you know, buy one pack when you're spontaneously doing that, because so often you'd get a card that was just useless. That's not going to be the case here like if you you're just randomly buying a pack even if you're not doing a two out of giant draft, they're all relevant cards that are going to be playable in different formats. I think that is a home run in a way that conspiracy really really whiffed on.
1: Yeah, I I agree 100% on that. Just there aren't going to be the feel bads and just every card's going to be relevant. You know, there's not going to be a card that you open up is like, well, I'm never gonna play this. This rare is absolute crap. Like if it's a reprint, it's probably something that we are needing anyways. Uh and if it's not, it's it's something new that you get to experiment with. It's not like you know open up that voltaic chimera and you just throw it away. You know, there there's stuff here that it, it's gonna matter to people. And I, I think they found a really good balance of having a, a unique set for multiplayer that also, you know, carries over to Commander in a not awkward way. It's very elegant how they worked it out i think it's a really cool set i'm very excited for it and i think they just did a a fantastic job with it yeah i'm super excited
0: but let's move on now to our final segment and that is challenging the stats while we are super excited about a bunch of these cards there are a handful that we think might end up seeing a bit more play than they necessarily deserve for example, I'm talking about the card Fumble, a blue instant for two mana that says, return target creature to its owner's hand, you gain control of all auras and equipment that were attached to it, and then attach them to another creature. When I first saw this card, man, I was super impressed. I was like, whoa, are you kidding? I can bounce their Voltron and then take all of their equipment? That's excellent, and I expect that that's the reaction that a whole lot of other players had, too. It was just like, dang, Battle Bond, even at the uncommon level, these cards are so cool. And while it is true, I think that we need to take exception with the card Fumble. It's a great name, but let's remember that like the most popular equipment in EDH is Lightning Greaves or Swiftfoot Boots. People have Hexproof on their commander a whole lot. People have Shroud on their commander. You're not usually able to target them, which kind of makes Fumble itself a fumble. You're not actually going to be able to do this trick to get the stuff that you want from them. And that just that sours just my taste a little bit for the
2: card fumble. Yeah, I, I read it wrong. I read it wrong at first, too. I thought it said choose target creature. So I'm like, oh man, it gets around Hex and Shroud. And so then I, then I was thinking, well, okay, well, worst case scenario, almost every game has somebody wearing Lightning Greaves or something wearing Swiftfoot Boots. It's like two mana to get a Swiftfoot Boots or get a Lightning Greaves and, and take it away from somebody else at the same time like that's ridiculous and that's the that was the low end i was thinking like worst case scenario you grab a pair of greaves best case scenario you grab you know a handful of swords and whatever so yeah i at first i was like this is crazy and then i read it closely and saw oh it's targeted oh well i'm never going to be able to target anything i want to steal at that point
0: right and most decks will have lightning greaves and especially if they you're up against like a voltron where they have a bunch of other equipment They're going to have stuff, for example, a Voltron off the top of my head is Kemba Ka Regent, and 81% of Kemba decks are running Swiftfoot boots. And that's probably, like, their prime, like, equipment to go and get, to, like, attach, that way their Kemba stays protected. That's why these equipment are so valuable in the format. That's why they're so popular, because they protect your commander from a rogue path to exile, or from a rogue go for the throat. So, Fumble, while I really like the idea, I think that this one's going to see more play than it deserves as sort of a comparison it reminds me of the card grip of phyrexia which showed up in the commander 2016 product that was a three mana blue instant that says to gain control of target equipment and then create a germ to attach to it and that would be really neat especially if you took someone's argentum armor but the main point of it would be to like steal someone's greaves because that's uh, an equipment that you see all over the place but grip of Phyresis only shows up in 993 decks and that's just not a huge metric and I feel like Fumble should have probably around the same fate. It looks really, really sick, but in actual practical gameplay. Unless you have an Arcane Lighthouse or a Glaring Spotlight, it's it's kind of kind of tough to make this work. So Fumble, I'm sorry, but you're kind of a miss for me. I want to challenge the stats on you. What about you guys? Matt, what's your pick?
1: So my pick, I kind of alluded to it earlier, uh, is going to be play of the game. It's the the eight-mana exile all non on all non-land permanents. I think it's just going to be a really good way just to, to level the playing field. You know, one person gets too far ahead, whether, you know, they're playing Voltron and, you know, have a stack of enchantments or stack of equipment out there. They have, you know, 20 tokens. They're getting out of hand really quick. It's just going to let the people who fall behind, maybe they don't draw very well. It's going to let people pull back in. It's going to create, I think way more just i mean just the assist cards in general you're gonna have way more interactive games uh stuff's not gonna be over so quick so you know prosh food chain dude they tap out get a food chain you know one person they're not gonna be able to do all the work by themselves but so let's everybody share the load i think it's just a lot of that unofficial teamwork yeah i i just man i i'm really excited for the assist mechanic in general i think play the game is something that uh, people are going to overlook though just because like we said it is an eight mana wrath um, but when you divide it up, even if you you know you pay four, somebody else pays four for you, it makes it much easier to cast, and it's gonna, yeah, like I said, just catch everybody up, make sure that one person isn't just beating down on the table and and running away with it. So
0: I'm I feel like I got to challenge Matt's challenge the stats here. You said that this one's gonna get overlooked, but I think this one's gonna get way overplayed. At best, it's a four-man wrath that someone else had to also help you pay for. Well, that's just like a day of judgment or a wrath of God. And we said in a
1: previous episode that we'd rather play a fumigate than a wrath of God. I don't know what to make of this. This also exiles, though, and it's all non-land permanent. So it's not just creatures. It's it's hitting the entire table of all permanents. So I think that that type of effect is is worth overpaying a little bit on. Maybe. Dana, what
2: do you think of Matt's pick? I also don't love the card. I think... Hour of Revelation exists that's almost always going to do the same thing for three mana, um, and you don't have to worry about anybody else paying anything to have it do that. So I, I think that is a card that is competing directly with it and is much, much better. And on top of that, then you're looking at the other Wraths that exist in white as well. Maybe it's a meta-dependent thing, but I, just, I think I kind of touched on this before. You're also relying on people to have mana free and then be willing to help you with a card that also is going to probably hurt them. I mean, maybe sometimes it won't, but they're oftentimes, even if the person's in the last place and you're hitting someone who's winning, they're like, well, but I'm also losing this, 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 and this. I just don't know how often it's going to be good compared to the spells that are always going to be good.
0: Right. If someone's leaving up an amount of mana that is beneficial for you to cast this, if they're leaving up four mana or something, well, it's probably because they're holding, like, a cryptic command. If they're holding up six mana, maybe a Cyclonic Rift is there, and they've actually got seven. Like, I feel like people aren't actually going to want to pay a whole bunch of mana. But, as usual, Matt and I disagree, so we'll just have to see who's right in the future. He
2: was right in moldrotha, so, I mean... I was mean, right. I am, <laughs>
0: I am one for one. I will win this time!
2: I promise it! Dana, what's your challenging the stats? Stunning Reversal is an instant in black that I thought was getting a lot of hype. It's three in a black that says, the next time you would lose the game this turn, instead draw seven cards and your life total becomes one. Except stunning Reversal. So it buys you a turn, draws you seven cards, and gives you a chance to come back and win. I think despite us talking about how well a lot of this stuff scales into Commander, I think this is one that doesn't. I think in Two-Headed Giant, when you're getting hit by the other team and you're going to Lose the game, being able to stop that loss and draw seven cards and then untap and crack back with a fistful is probably pretty great. and It's probably going to give your team a chance to win that game very frequently. I think in commander, very, very often what's going to happen is you're going to cast it, survive, draw your seven cards, and then the turn will get passed to the next person who will just kill you because you're at one life. And you draw seven. You just drew seven cards, so you're an even bigger target. You're easy to kill, and now you're dangerous. So I think unless you're casting this on the person directly to your right, very frequently this is just going to let you live long enough to have the next person kill you. So I think it's going to be in a lot of decks, and it's n- because people look at it and see how great it's going to be in Two Headed Giant, and think it's going to save them, and I just don't think it's going to.
1: I agree. I I, th- I don't like this card at all, and doesn't even you know. Take into account double strike effects. So somebody, you know, first strike damage happens, you die, but you don't. Regular damage happens and you're dead.
2: Right. Yep. Yeah, there's just a lot of things this doesn't save you from, particularly in Commander. Um, now, I feel like it's, like I said, I, I mentioned this before, but it's going to be great and 2 at a Giant because there's only that one chance to kill you, essentially. But yeah, it's going to get overplayed
0: yeah i can I can definitely see that. It looks a lot cooler than it maybe will end up being. With that said, even though there are a handful of cards that we think might get overlooked or that might get overplayed, I'm super excited for this set, guys.
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: yeah, me too. i'm I'm really bummed that I'm gonna miss uh, the pre-release for this uh, or just any of the release events with all my buddies because we love doing two-headed giant stuff, and we just don't get to do it very often. So having a set designed for that, and I'm going to have to miss it, uh, I, I'm super bummed about.
2: And it's, it's going to be released like the weekend before GP Vegas as well. So I'm looking forward to, I'm going to make time to hit the pre-release to play with some friends, but I'm also going to definitely try to get in some draft pods at GP Vegas to play this as well. And
0: remember listeners, you got to build those new partner decks to help me, maybe Dana out so that we can <laughs> beat Matt in our bet. No, you don't have to do that. But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they
1: find you all? So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And all the other social medias. And
2: that's where I'm at. You can find me on the Twitter bird as well, at Dana Roach. And you can listen to me once a week. In addition to this, on CMDR Central, talking about EDH
0: and i'm joey schultz you can find me at joseph m schultz on twitter you can follow edh rec on facebook and twitter at edh rec and the edh rec subreddit if you have a question or a request for a new site feature p.s if the edh rec facebook page gets 5,000 likes there's going to be a giveaway so head on over there and smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize we're also doing a giveaway for the edh rec cast twitter page once we hit 1,000 followers so be sure to check out edh rec cast on twitter as well As Dana mentioned, you can check out his other podcast at cmdrcentral.libson.com. You can check us out at edhreccast.libson.com or contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com. And you can also find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help us boost our visibility and help other folks find the podcast. You can find this podcast and more on EDHREC's very own community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other Commander content creators as we can from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic Team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. And until then, remember: EDH record your deck before your record deck. And enjoy Battlebond. Take care, you guys. I, I guess for me, it's always been I want my work to be the thing that never feels like work. Like, what's what's the adage that I've heard?
2: It, yeah, if you, if you enjoy what you're doing, you'll never work a day in your life. My dad's version was either do a job that pays so much you don't care how much you like it, or do a job you like so much you don't care what it pays.
1: So
0: it's it was like a step beyond that. It was something like, um, find something that you love doing so much it makes you forget to-